It was the evening of October 28th in this foul year of our Lord, 2017, and the weather in Santa Monica was finally feeling something resembling autumnal. The marquee over the entrance to the Arrow Theater said that this was the 12th annual Dust Till Dawn Horathon, and I thought, wow, I don't even know how many of these I've attended by this point, which is really my loss because the Horathon is always a good time. Not that I always 100% felt that way. If you read my earlier blog entries on previous horathons, you'll find that it took me a few years to get the stick out of my ass about the full freak flag flaunting at these fine festivities. The screaming host, the audience members wearing costumes, the call-and-response gags between the screen and the audience during the on-screen interstitials, the on-stage theatrics featuring characters with names like Corngorn, Abraham Lincoln, and Wizard Policeman. But I can now assure you that a combination of age mellowing me out, as well as an overwhelmingly apocalyptic sense of the outside world, has taught me to enjoy myself, whenever and wherever, making this particular exit cavity stick-free. Stick. Once we were all inside and ready for the twelve or so hours of horror films, both goofy and non-goofy, intentional and unintentional, the evening began with our host, Mr. Grant Moniger, running up on stage. Mike in hand, welcoming us the same way he's welcomed us in past horathons, with explosive energy expelled at the audience as if he had too much in him and had to make room for even more building up within him that also had to come up violently. course it riled us all up and so we responded in kind with cheers and hoots and hollers maybe not at him but at something that's for sure the marathon began with the now traditional use of the 1980s television series tj hooker starring william shatner where we watched portions of an episode while fake credits featuring the names of horathon attendees popped up on screen following that were the first round of interstitials that would play between films throughout the night beginning with some of the old favorites such as the corngorn prayer song the, the alan marmot The Red Roof Inn commercial. Multitasking. Chances of me working are remote. Both versions of Dennis Parker's song, Like an Eagle. Like an eagle, like an eagle, in the city, in the city. The Energizer commercial. Woo, we'll be up all night doing your homework. And Brent, among others. Bill. Bill. Brent. There were some new ones, too, such as the takeoff-slash-recreation of old advertisements for 1900 or 976 numbers that featured the song Library from the album Floral Shop by Macintosh Plus. I got news for you. The music is from the vaporwave genre, and I think they came up with the name vaporwave because white people appropriating the chopped and screwed genre from black people was too long. This year, Telly Savalas was introduced into the Horathon cast of characters. We watched on stage as the Bride of Corngorn ran off with the bald-headed actor, portrayed by a volunteer wearing a Telly Savalas mask, and we also watched the real Mr. Savalas on the big screen in a couple of clips. 
The first was from some 70s television program which had a distinctly European feel to it, where our man Telly stood before a black void, smoking a cigarette and wearing a black velvet jacket with matching shirt that was unbuttoned to expose both his manly chest and various gold necklaces, as he performed a spoken word cover of the song If by the group Bread. If a picture paints a thousand words, then why can't I paint you? The second teleclip was from an Australian television series called The Extraordinary, one of those shows where people tell stories about their experiences with the paranormal, otherworldly, and yes, extraordinary. Celebrity guest Savalas told a story from his younger days, accompanied by a cheesy reenactment, where he found himself stranded in the middle of the night on a highway in an automobile with no gas. Even though he had just come from a date, and you would think he'd make sure he had more than enough gas to cover any possible detours. I mean, who knows how much fun this date could have ended up. You have to be prepared for such possibilities. So Tally's walking down the road, gas can in hand, when a Cadillac pulls up, and a creepy, high-pitched Good Samaritan offers him a ride to the nearest filling station. The man offers to lend Savalas's broke ass some money to pay for the gas, and again, I have to chide Mr. Savalas for not thinking ahead, because he clearly only had enough money to cover the date. Barely at that. And I'm sorry, but if you can barely afford something, that really means you cannot afford it. That goes for dates, that goes for car purchases, that goes for buying a house, buying clothes, all of that. Trust me, ladies and gentlemen, always give yourself financial breathing room before going in on any kind of purchase. It'll keep the repo man away, it'll keep your inbox clear of past due notices, and most importantly, it'll keep you from catching a late night lift from some creepy high-pitched good Samaritan. Who turned out to be a ghost, by the way. There's the ending to that story. Now, what I'm about to tell you is true, if you want to hear it. I do want to hear you it. You do want to hear it, then I'll tell you. I was never superstitious. I'll give you a ride. The first film of the evening was An American Werewolf in London, from 1981, written and directed by master decapitator John Landis. Oh, I kid the head chopper. I used to be hard on that poor guy about the snafu on the set of the Twilight Zone movie that ended three lives and ruined countless others, but now that it's coming out how frighteningly rapetastic Hollywood is, I find his crimes are now rather innocent in comparison. Dude pulled the fuck it card as far as safety was concerned, but who hasn't thrown caution to the wind when it involved somebody else's life? It's not like he grabbed Vic Morrow by the pussy, and he certainly didn't fuck those little kids. Well, not sexually, anyway. David Naughton and Griffin Dunn are two young dudes out backpacking in England's countryside, and for a couple of guys talking about chicks they want to bang, they're actually kind of likable. I bet you if they were to make the same movie today, they'd be douche bros right out of an Eli Roth film. Anyway, they end up veering off the road, and out comes El Hombre Lobo to massacre one of them, leaving the Dr. Pepper guy barely breathing. The rest of the film involves David recovering from his wounds in London, where he hits it off with his nurse, followed by just straight up hitting it. The nurse is played by Jenny Gutter, and if you've seen her in Walkabout or Logan's Run, You'd want her as your nurse, too. I'm not into the domination thing, on either end, but that part where a gutter is trying to get making it over here to eat his food at the hospital and she says, Shall I be forced to feed you, David? Ay, Dios mío. I started feeling really weird in a good way, and when she says after that, Will I have to take such drastic action again, David? I don't know why, but I felt like she was talking to me, and my response was, Yes, yes you do, Nurse Jenny Gutter. Force me to eat. I'm just kidding. You never have to force me to eat. I eat everything, man. Anyway, David turns into a werewolf. I first saw this in 2004 and hadn't seen it since, but my opinion remains the same. When John Landis was on, he was on. And this might be my favorite of his films. Landis balances horror, comedy, drama, and sex with Jenny a gutter and a shower all so effortlessly. 
Lots of credit, of course, goes to Rick Baker and his terrific effects work. The sequence where David goes through his excruciating transformation from man to werewolf still stuns. And by the end of it, when you see the shot of the full moon while hearing David do the altered beast howl, the audience broke out into applause. This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on the night of the full moon. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Fate let one live. That lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 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 John Landis, the brilliant young director of Animal House and the Blues Brothers, has turned a classic tale of terror into something new. Something different. Excuse me. A naked American man stole my balloon. I'm a werewolf. An American werewolf in London. Something different. The second film was 1991's Popcorn, directed by Mark Harrier, who was replacing original director Alan Ormsby. Jill Sholin stars as Maggie, a film student studying at a college in the central coast of California, or at least that's what I assumed based on the look of the locations. So imagine my delightful surprise when I found out the entire film was shot in Jamaica. Maggie and her fellow film students, played by Profile from Heartbreak Ridge, Ellen Sue from A League of Their Own, and the dyslexic girl from Summer School who was trying to get her driver's license, among others, come up with the idea to raise money for the film department by throwing an all-night horror-thon at an old theater that is set to be wrecking balled in a few weeks. When the idea is brought up, the words all-night horror-thon are actually used. So of course all of us in the Arrow cheered wildly upon hearing that. You don't get much movie geek chat during the film class scenes, which in 1991 would probably consist of debating who was the better director, Orson Welles or Alfred Hitchcock. Maybe they'd go on about guys like Lucas and Spielberg too. Had the film been made a few years later, it would be Quentin Tarantino. Or it would be like the film class scene in Scream 2, but less insufferable. You make popcorn today, at this very moment, you probably couldn't get him to shut the fuck up about Edgar Wright and Baby Driver. While cleaning up the place to make it all presentable for the people who are going to spill popcorn, soda, and God knows what else all over the place on movie night, the students and their professor discover an old film that contains a legitimately freaky short called Possessor, made by a cult leader who went on to pull a Shoshana Dreyfus by setting fire to the theater playing Possessor. So maybe that has something to do with the murders that occur later on during the horrorathon, right? I remember seeing the television ads for this back in 91. It was sold as a straight-up horror film worthy of being included with Halloween, Friday the 13th, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, they actually mentioned those films in the ads. I dismissed it as some wannabe slasher that clearly wasn't going to be as good as those films. When I finally caught it on HBO a year later, where it played back-to-back -back with the Tom Savini remake of Night of the Living Dead, I was surprised by how much I liked it. I was also surprised by the tone. Popcorn qualifies as a slasher, but not a particularly bloody or brutal one. It's a much lighter, even comedic film, compared to the one that was advertised. 
The films within the film that played during the horathon are the biggest source of humor in popcorn. They are all from the 50s and 60s and include William Castle-style gimmicks. The first is about a giant mosquito, which means a fake giant mosquito flies over the audience. The second is about a prison escapee going on a rampage with his new power to kill with electric shocks. So of course there are shock buzzers placed under the theater seats. And the third is a dubbed Japanese movie about a killer gas, which plays while nasty odors get pumped in through the air vents of the auditorium. I liked it even more during the second go-round. Watching it with an audience at an actual all-night horror movie marathon added to the fun, and I recommend it as part of your own all-nighter playlist. Or maybe as part of a double feature with Joe Dante's Matinee, which also involves William Castle-esque gimmickry. Before the horror of Halloween... Before the fear of Friday the 13th. Before the evil of a nightmare on Elm Street. Before them all, there was... Now, 15 years later, he's back. Oh, yes. There's something happening here that I've been looking for all of my life. There's smoke. Someone takes her hand. She's running. The same man comes towards her. I'm in a dream. I remember. I remember the whole thing. Speaking of William Castle gimmickry, our third film of the night was an actual William Castle joint, 1959's The Tingler, directed by Castle and starring Vincent Price. The film begins with a prologue where Castle tells the audience how there's nothing wrong with screaming if the fear gets to be too much, because sometimes screaming might save your life. See, in the world of the Tingler, we all have a centipede living on our spine, rent-free, never so much as taking out the trash every once in a while, and God forbid it remembers to replace an empty toilet paper roll with a new one. I mean, really, what kind of fucking asshole doesn't replace the toilet paper? I don't get it. It takes two seconds to take the empty roll out and put a new one in. This is why I prefer the company of myself. I wash dishes as soon as I'm done using them, and I replace the toilet paper roll. Whenever I see an empty toilet paper roll, I can only assume that the lazy motherfucker who used the toilet last is walking around with a shitty ass because he or she prefers to stay dirty down there rather than put up a fresh roll so they can finish the job properly. Anyway, motherfucker tingler. A tingler lives on your spine, and when you get scared, it grows like my anger towards people who don't replace toilet paper rolls. It grows and it grows, and if you don't scream or stop being scared, the tingler grows stronger and eventually crushes your spine, the way I would crush the spine of some motherless fuck who won't replace the goddamn toilet paper roll. Price makes friends with the owner-manager of a silent movie theater, who, like every other man in this film, wears a suit to work. Even the middle-aged employee working the ticket booth is wearing a suit. Go to your average revival movie house today, and if you see an employee wearing a suit to work, he's probably wearing it with a day-glow tie over a t-shirt displaying a rainbow or a unicorn, and he's probably sexually harassing the female volunteers. Anyway, that dude has a deaf-mute wife who figures into the plot, and his movie theater figures into the climax in a clever way that involves both the on-screen audience and those of us watching this in an actual movie theater. This was lots of fun. 
Even the non-Tingler stuff is a hoot, like the scenes between Price and his unpleasant wife, where everything they say to each other is dripping and fuck you. Or the scene where Price takes acid as a way to work up his fear to test his inner Tingler, giving a play-by-play into one of those old-school detection machines the entire time. That reminded me of the time I recorded myself on a microcassette recorder after I took shrooms. I ended up composing some weird Bobby McFerrin-esque tune with gibberish lyrics. Then I lost the tape. I got a kick out of how everybody in this movie operates on various levels of asshole. Price can be short with people who ask simple questions, his wife's a bitch, the deaf-mute woman refuses to shake hands with people, and Price's partner leaves a poor dog in the car with the windows rolled up, and because it's the 1950s, nobody cares. This was originally released with a castle-designed gimmick called Percepto, with seats in the theater that would give out a vibrating buzz in order to freak the audience out into thinking that the Tingler was doing its thing on them. The screening at the Arrow didn't have that setup, so instead they had volunteers walk up and down the aisles, whipping out these long, furry, snake-like vibrators onto our laps. At least that's what I hope it was, and not a bunch of well-endowed pervs having their way with us. Anyway, get a bidet. They're awesome. I'm William Castle. I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the Tingler? fourth film was the 1988 masterpiece Hack-O-Lantern, a.k.a. Halloween Night, directed by Jacques Mundra, a name that should be familiar to anyone who has watched more than his or her fair share of late-night Skinamax in the 90s, with titles like Night Eyes, Last Call, Sexual Malice, and Improper Conduct under his belt, Mr. Mundra gets my eternal respect for riding in like a knight in shining armor, wielding the legendary Shannon Tweed sword to slay the dragon that is teenage horniness. The movie puts the name of actor High Pike before the title, causing most of the audience to react like, are we supposed to know who this guy is? It wasn't until later that I found out Pike appeared in Blade Runner, which I guess made him the default name actor for this low-budget production, where he plays a piece-of-shit farmer who once raped his daughter on her wedding day and then later went on to murder her husband. He's also a Satan worshipper, who often makes the sign of the horns with his hands, and every time he did, most of us in the audience would cheer because, like him, we are all fans of Ronnie James Dio. I applaud the filmmakers for casting a guy who looks like a beer-swilling hayseed because I have a feeling that's what your average devil worshipper looks like, not some sinister yet distinguished-looking gentleman like Christopher Lee. Anyway, this grandpa now dotes on his daughter's kid, who, for all we know, might actually be his, the fuck. And while some grandfathers teach their grandkids how to fish, or why ethnic people can't be trusted, this one is getting the little boy all up in the devil business. 
Years later, the kid grows up to become Gregory Scott Cummins, a.k.a. Mac's dad from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, a.k.a. The Devil in Snoop Dogg's Murder Was the Case video, and I believe this marks the third time I've seen him pop up at one of these horror movie marathons. He was in Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge at the Marathon at the Cine Family. He was in Blood Games at the New Bev All Nighter. And now here he is in this movie at the Arrow. Anyway, his character's got a pretty sweet life going. Living in his mom's basement with movie posters and neon beer signs on the wall, wearing his black shirt with the sleeves cut off, sporting a pair of shades, smoking cigs, working out on his weight bench while wearing a Rambo-style headband. All that's missing are some sweet nunchucks to practice some Bruce Lee moves with. I could see hanging out with him, spotting each other while we do bench presses, watching horror movies, smoking some of his weed, which is fucking swag, but it's free, and listening to fucking Slayer, man. He also has a hot 80s-style platinum blonde who doesn't believe in pants to speed off with in his bitchin' Pontiac Fiero. Unfortunately, he can't have sex with her because his grandfather insists that he has to remain pure in order to perform some satanic ritual on Halloween night. So, in the meantime... Mac's dad has to release his pent-up, I-wanna-fuck energy in other ways, like beating up his sister's boyfriend on some Tony Montana shit, or worshipping the Dark Lord in his closet where he keeps a Helga Pataki shrine to Lucifer, or listening to that evil rock music on his Walkman, which causes him to have dreams about being in a rad band, playing a guitar that turns into a pitchfork, which is then shoved into his neck by an evil devil woman, who also happens to be the only African-American in this otherwise lily-white cast. There are murders with decent levels of blood and gore, lots of scary rituals involving the Satanist giving props to their horned master, most disturbing of all, a scene where a random character at a Halloween party makes a few casual comments, but rather than moving on, he keeps talking. And that's when I realized that this guy is doing an honest-to-goodness stand-up comedy set. He goes on to make fun of strippers, asks why nude pictorials in adult magazines include bios, and acts out the plight of a turkey before Thanksgiving. This movie is goofy as hell. It's also that special kind of bad, that samurai cop or dangerous men kind of bad that can only be achieved by having a foreigner with the shaky grasp of his or her second language in charge of the proceedings. Which makes me wonder if there are American filmmakers in other countries making terrible movies that people in those countries like to goof on. Grandpa's got something very special for you. I mean, it's a pumpkin. That's enough, Tommy. I told you to let your father do the jack-o'-lantern later. You're gonna cut yourself. What did I tell you? Give it... Oh. But Mom, I like the taste of blood. Grandpa says it's good for me. Grandpa? When did you see Grandpa? Ever since my father died on Halloween night, this day seems to really affect her, you know? She hasn't gotten over it yet. I can hear nothing anymore. So what does Nora Bennington have that I don't have? For one thing, a tattoo on her butt. Does he look as good out of his uniform? Oh, I hope this isn't going to turn into something X-rated or illegal. Tommy, you're scaring the hell out of me, okay? You've been at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, like a, a turkey. Three days before Thanksgiving. Oh! 
<laughs> I know he's in there with Grandpa. You shouldn't have come here, Vera. But he killed my boyfriend, Grandpa. For God's sake, wanted to, to keep my pet <laughs> We welcome the night. Between films, as per usual, the volunteers at the Arrow began serving out the free eats and drinks. Pizza from Little Caesars, Monster Energy drinks, wraps, sandwiches, Rice Krispie treats, candy, Hostess cakes, and coffee. As in past horrorthons, Grant threw and tossed various Blu-rays and DVDs and candy at audience members. With each year, there seems to be a larger crowd of people gathering near the front of the stage to catch movies or gather the ones that land on the ground. And with special edition Blu-rays of John Carpenter's The Thing and Society up for grabs, I don't blame them. By the end of the night, it was mostly bargain multi-movie packs for public domain titles that were left, plus a lot of Vicente Fernandez joints. I ended up with a DVD triple pack of Valentin Trujillo movies, and if you don't know about him, then you don't fucking know, bro. Two of those movies in my triple pack turned out to be among my brother-in-law's favorite films, so happy birthday to him, I guess. And happy birthday to my niece, who ended up with the corn-gorn shirt I purchased in the lobby, which despite being labeled as extra large, fit me like an O.J. Simpson glove. So my advice to any horathoners who want to buy a shirt next year is take that thing to the restroom and try it on before going home. Not that going to the restroom was an option for a few hours that night. To the best of my knowledge, a water main broke or a major clog backed something up and the upstairs restrooms had to be closed for a while. Eventually plumbers were called in and the restrooms were reopened, but the stairs leading to them were wet and sticky and it had made its way down to the carpet of the Arrow's lobby, leaving behind the unmistakable smell of water that should have remained in pipes. On our way out for some fresh air between films, my friend guesstimated the high price for the overnight plumbing job. He also said that the carpet would have to be shampooed as well, adding more to the bill. I asked him how long something like that would take, and he said it would take a while. There's also the amount of time needed for the carpet to dry to consider. I told him that the Arrow had a screening of the classic horror film The Haunting scheduled the following evening, and his response was a look that I could only interpret as, Good luck with that. The fifth film of the night was the 1989 Wes Craven picture Shocker, starring Peter You gotta join the army, motherfucker! Berg as Jonathan, a college jock who gets mixed up with a serial-killing television repairman played by Mitch Pileggi because they have some kind of psychic connection and whatnot. The murderer has a thing for taking out whole families, and he's so full of rage, this dude. He's not like some creepy, calm type of psycho. He's seething and pissed off about who knows what, and he kills the shit out of them. He's just so mad, angry all the time. He's like me, only I haven't started to kill people yet, but give me time. And your address. During the opening credits sequence, we watch inserts of a television set being repaired with various tools by a muttering, grumbling Pelleggi. So, of course, it's the angriest muttering and grumbling, and it's a pretty good sequence. And I think a big part of it is the title song performed over it by a band called The Dudes of Wrath that's comprised of guys from Kiss, Whitesnake, Motley Crue, and Van Halen. There's also a cover of No More Mr. Nice Guy by Megadeth on the soundtrack, which you might want to look up the music video for because it's hilariously obvious that the lead singer and guitarist Dave Mustaine is so high on smack he can barely stand. So they never show him play guitar and sing at the same time. It's always in separate shots. And even then, he's never in sync. Anyway, the movie. 
I found myself feeling so sorry for Peter Berg's character for the multiple ringers he gets put through early on. I apologize for getting all spoilery, but the movie is nearly 30 years old, so here goes. He loses his entire family, save for one foster dad, to angry murder-happy Pelleggi. And shortly after they're buried, Pelleggi leaves Berg's oh-so-pretty girlfriend dead in a bathtub of her own blood. Berg really plays the hell out of his despair, breaking into tears and rage at these situations. So when they finally catch the killer, and Berg demands to his police lieutenant father that he be seated front row to the motherfucker's execution, I was like, fuck yeah, son, you earned it. Watch that motherfucker fry like bacon. Record the goddamn thing so you can watch it over and over again. And I'm against the death penalty. I feel okay spoiling this much of the film because this is really only a third of the entire story, and where it ends up going after this left me incredibly amused and surprised at Craven's audacity. I heard of Shocker over the years, but never bothered watching it, because I was under the impression that it wasn't one of Craven's better films. The funny thing is, had I watched it back then as a kid, I probably would have felt that my impression was correct, and the culprit would have been the running time. You see, Shocker is nearly two hours long, and half of it doesn't feel like a horror film at all, but rather a very dark crime drama with a light touch of the paranormal. Or should I say, extraordinary? I'll give you a ride. And little kid me would have been like, Hey, I thought this was supposed to be Freddy Krueger all over again. But as a patient adult who recently purchased Tarkovsky's Stalker on Blu-ray, I was able to enjoy this and go, Oh, this is Freddy Krueger all over again. Only this time we get the prequel to how he became the Freddy Krueger we all know and love for the first 45 minutes or so. Once Pelleggi's character reaches his full horror villain potential, the movie gets downright nutty in where it goes. It really feels like the part of Craven's brain that would stop to question him on whether an idea made sense or not was on vacation while he was writing this script, and I really appreciate that, because it makes for a fun movie that had me laughing and clapping at times. Actually, to be specific, it makes for a fun second half of the movie, in which I laughed and clapped. Because to be honest, that first half about Pelleggi making Berg's life hell got a little too grim at times for my liking at four in the morning, and I was even considering stepping out for some fresh air. By the way, I was so entranced by Peter Berg's girlfriend in the film that I looked her up like a goddamn internet stalker. Her name is Camille Cooper, and she no longer acts. She became a citizen lobbyist in the 90s and got the Commonwealth of Virginia to include women and African Americans in their school textbooks, and has since gone on to become the Director of Government Affairs for Protect, a, quote, national bipartisan pro-child anti-crime lobby whose sole focus is making the protection of children a top political and policy priority at the national, state, and local levels, end quote. And now I'm probably on some kind of list for looking her up. We are here today to bear witness to the execution of Horace Pinker, whose unspeakable atrocities have horrified the people of this great state. He stands convicted of 52 counts of aggravated assault, 23 counts of armed robbery and 37 counts of murder in the first degree. Prisoner, have any final words? Yeah. No more Mr. Nice Guy. I don't think he's dead. Craven brings you his greatest creation. No Shocker. From one attempt to create a new Freddy Krueger-style franchise, we went to another attempt to create a Freddy Krueger-style franchise with the sixth film of the marathon, the 1994 cyber horror 
Brain Scan, written by Andrew Kevin Walker of Sesevenen fame and directed by John Flynn of Rolling Thunder and Out for Justice legend. It stars Edward Furlong as Michael, this kid who I think is supposed to be a kind of withdrawn antisocial type, except he has at least one friend and he has a horror movie club at his high school, which means one actual friend and a handful of acquaintances to me. And it sure as hell takes more than a modicum of effort to set up a goddamn club. I don't remember there being like a horror movie club at my high school, at least not some kind of official deal that you could actually go to on campus. Shit, I wasn't able to find people my age who were into movies the same way I was into them. The best I could do was find a guy who was really into Sailor Moon. He would listen to the soundtracks of that series in his car, and he had posters of those anime chicks all over his room. There was one looming over his bed, so that was cool, knowing what he jerked off to. And we all know what Michael is jerking off to. His video recordings from his Peeping Tom sessions of The Girl Next Door, played by Amy Hargraves, an actress who was in her early 20s, but she's supposed to be like 16 or 17 here, which makes it weird to see these brief shots of her topless. And now that I think about it, wasn't Phoebe Cates in Fast Times at Ridgemont High supposed to be underage too? As was every other actress in a teen comedy or teen horror film in the 80s? See, but that was okay for me when I saw those movies because I was underage. And when I first saw Brain Scan on cable, I was still underage. But now, I'm an adult, and I'm watching another adult show me her titties, and we're supposed to be all tee-hee-hee about it because she's pretending to be a fucking kid. It's kind of why the whole schoolgirl thing bothers me, and by bothers me I mean makes me rock hard because I'm a man, and the sooner the women of this planet turn Amazon and murder everything with a penis, the better. Then it'll just be women preying on women. Anyway, I'm like, fuck this Michael. He's living the life as far as I'm concerned. Sure, his mom died in a horrible accident and his father is never around, but he's still living the life. Wait until you see his room. His situation is like Homeboy from Hack lantern except his room is in the attic. And it's one of those huge attics like that spoiled fuck Kevin McAllister had in Home Alone. This place is big enough to be the main set of a sitcom. That's how big it is. He's got the stereo, he's got the widescreen television, which for 1994 is really bleeding edge, and it's all hooked up to his voice-activated computer with the internet hooked in and everything. You don't see him ever going online to chat or face off against Zero Cool and Acid Burn, though. I think he just sticks to computer games. The internet was some slow dial-up shit back then. You couldn't download games the way we can now. Shit, back then it took me seven months to download any Kamozi's That shit was played out on the radio by the time I got the complete song. So who knows how long a fucking game would take. No, you needed a CD-ROM if you wanted in on some sweet computer game action, which is what happens here when Furlong's buddy tips him off to a new game advertised on Fangoria. So he gets the CD-ROM and jacks in, or whatever the cool term back in 94 was, to this new experimental game called Brain Scan, which gets into the player's brain and scans it, I guess. Whatever the case, the player is sent on kill missions that require breaking into a house, finding a murder weapon, and taking out a chosen victim. So this movie kind of sort of predicted open-world assassination games like the Hitman and Assassin's Creed series. Unlike those games, BrainScan does not result in shitty film adaptations, but rather in the horrifying aftermath of the killings. After Michael takes out some dude in the game, he finds out that some dude in his neighborhood was killed in the exact same way. He immediately freaks out and tries to jack out, and that's when the mascot of the game enters the real world to fuck with Michael's shit big time. His name is Trickster, and he's played by T. Ryder Smith, a stage actor who has a really good write-up about his brain scan experience on his website, tridersmith.org. As with most of John Flynn's filmography, this is a movie that is way better than it has any right to be. I liked the film when I first saw it back in 94, and I really liked it this time. It's got a tiny little bit of a teeny bopper videodrome vibe going on with the main character's obsession to find the ultimate experience becoming way more than he bargained for. Or maybe I just got that vibe because it was filmed in Canada. Either way, it's a well-made film, and it's early 90s as fuck, which for me is a big, big plus, but for others could be a hindrance. 
but it's a hindrance that I feel the film manages to work with by telling an involving story and featuring good performances by everybody who isn't Edward Furlong, who is adequate at best. Sorry, Edward. Now that I have your attention, please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Trickster. What was that film you were watching? Death, death, death. Death, death, death. Part two. Oh, Lord. Michael's seen it. Go for it, man. Done it. Played it. Look, I've played them all. And just when he thought he'd die of boredom. Brain scared. The ultimate experience in interactive terror. Never leave home without it. <laughs> You're in the game, man. You're in control. You must think like a killer. Cover up any clues. Leave no witnesses, no evidence. A challenge he can't resist. It was so real. It was sick. See, I told you, man. I told you it would blow your mind. A game he can't escape. There was a grisly murder in the quiet suburban town of Mountview today. So you did it. What was on that desk? It's not a game anymore. Hamilton and Hayden. It's real. It wasn't supposed to be real. Real, unreal, what's the difference? I didn't kill the man. I didn't even know him. You're in this now. You won't survive on your own. You started this and now you're afraid to finish it just like you're afraid of everything else. I won't kill her. Kill her. Wait. The witness has to Edward Furlong, Frank Langella, and introducing T. Ryder Smith as the trickster. Brain scan. I can't wait to see what you do next. Unlike the previous six films that were all presented in 35mm, this seventh and final film of the Horathon was presented via DCP, and I wouldn't be surprised if a 35mm print no longer exists or ever existed for the shot in 16mm Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. Written and directed by John Barry, Deathbed began production in 1972 and was completed in 1977, just in time to show that Star Wars movie a thing or two about how to blow the minds of the audience. The film mostly takes place in the basement of an old abandoned mansion where the titular bed resides, suffering from a chronic case of the munchies, with only the trapped spirit of an early 20th century artist chilling out behind a painting on the wall to keep it company. The artist narrates the film while occasionally making disdainful comments to the bed, which it deserves because the bed's an asshole. The bed waits for any unfortunate schmucks who enter the basement for whatever reason. In the case of the opening sequence, it's a couple looking for a place where they can fuck and eat fried chicken. And once they get on the bed, yellow foamy liquid rises to the surface and suddenly the bed becomes a swimming pool of oblivion as they fall in and are eaten or digested or whatever it is the bed does to them because sometimes you hear chomping, sometimes you don't hear anything. I like that the bed is susceptible to indigestion and has to take Pepto-Bismol. And at one point, the bed gets a bleeding ulcer. This helps to humanize the demonic man-eating bed. The movie is broken up into several acts with cute title cards like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We watch various people become food for the bed in between flashbacks to previous meals over the past few decades, and it's all done in a goofy manner, except for the parts where it's not being goofy and is being deadly serious instead. Because for every wacky scene of the dad from Boy Meets World sticking his hands in the bed and then pulling them out as skeleton hands, there's a sadistic moment of the bed using its powers to slowly saw into a sleeping woman's throat with her necklace. But the constant changing and blending of tones actually worked here, and rather than being jarring, it created this unsettling sense of overwhelming creepiness with dashes of perversion, like maybe the guy who made this is not all right psychologically and or mentally. 
I mean that as a compliment, by the way. Based on what I heard about this film over the years, I went into Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, assuming it was going to be a really shitty failure in the So Bad It's Good category. But I feel it's too strange and unique to be dismissed that way. It doesn't feel like weird for weird's sake. It feels like it comes from a sincere place, and it's a genuine exhibition of George Barry's bonkers sensibility. It definitely suffers from the pitfalls of a first-time filmmaker working from a super low budget. Of its many flaws, I feel its biggest one is that even at 77 minutes, the movie overstays its welcome. But that only left me wishing Barry was given a shot at making another movie with a bigger budget so we can really see him rock and roll. Doesn't look like it'll happen, though. After completion, the film failed to secure distribution and languished in obscurity. Barry didn't even know there was a cult following until nearly 30 years later after finding out about his film making the bootleg circuit. I don't know how old Barry is, but it looks like he gave the movie game a shot, it didn't work out for him, and he's since moved on, which is too bad. Who knows what weirdo shit the guy could have been giving us for decades had Deathbed the Bed That Eats been given a chance back in the 70s. And so ended another horathon at the Arrow Theater, sometime around 9 in the morning. Of the remaining survivors, some got up and made their way out to the lobby. Others walked toward the screen to plunder the leftover loot inside the cardboard boxes left on the stage, while my buddy and I surveyed the damage in the auditorium. So much trash was left between the rows of seats and throughout the aisles, because apparently garbage cans don't exist. Plus the extra dirty business with the plumbing problems earlier that night left me not envying the cleanup crew one bit. We then left to have our traditional post-movie marathon breakfast. This time we went to Milo and Olive on Wilshire and had their breakfast pizza, which I highly recommend. Just ask them to add an extra egg to it if you're like me and want more protein and calories. It's got some kick to it as well, so be sure to have something to drink to cool down. Then I went home and took a nap. When I got up later that day, I checked my Facebook and saw a post from the Arrow Theater. It said that the screening of The Haunting had been cancelled. So much for luck. This has been The Exiles from Contentment Podcast, recorded live in front of an empty room. Exiles from Contentment has been brought to you by anger, paranoia, resentment, depression, low self-esteem, and rally cigarettes, now with less nicotine and less throat irritants. Remember, lady and gentlemen, if your cigarette tastes different, smoke rally. Episodes of this podcast can be downloaded at efcontentment.podbean.com. That's E as in EGADS. This asshole's podcast is terrible. F as in fuck this asshole's terrible podcast. Contentment as in something this asshole hasn't felt in a very long time. Dot pod as in podcast as in everybody's got their own goddamn podcast nowadays. And B as in what the Mexican-American host of this podcast probably eats every day. Am I right, real Americans? The Exiles from Contentment podcast can also be downloaded at exiledfromcontentment.blogspot.com.
EFcontentment.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as EFcontentment, all one word. Follow or friend us so we can then immediately have your tweets and posts muted in order for us to have a higher friend and follower count while pretending that we care about you. You can also email us at exiledfromcontentment at gmail.com. Until our next ramblings, this is Princess Sparkle for the Exiled from Contentment podcast saying take care and be well.